Howdy. Today's episode is a replay of one of Sue and Ann's can't-miss episodes. Enjoy. You can say, I know it's in the past. Of course I know it's in the past. (laughs) But your body is having an experience like it's happening right now. So you can very directly have this experience of the lack of integration. Like I know, you know, I survived that car accident, but every time I get in a car and there's, you know, trucks around, I'm having a panic attack. You know, I know it's in the past, but it's that lack of integration. After EMDR, people aren't even noticing. They forget that they even have the symptom. That's how it changes. So it's like, oh yeah, I couldn't used to drive. Oh yeah, I couldn't used to cross bridges. Oh yeah, I couldn't used to you know, whatever it is they couldn't do before, they're just back to normal. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, everybody. Therapist Uncensored continues to bring you, as you know, resources to grow security inside yourself and courage and closeness and security between you and others. The idea of deepening security also includes, and it has to include, caring about people that we will never meet. Since we know that trauma builds up in our body and it intrudes and actually impacts our stress response system, I mean, that's the definition of trauma, and it impacts our relationships. So it's a good timing that today we bring you a body-based episode that integrates EMDR, which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing. It integrates EMDR and attachment theory. We have an expert guest, Dr. Laurel Parnell. She is an internationally recognized expert and prolific author. She's written five books on EMDR. She is the director of the Parnell Institute for Attachment-Focused EMDR and serves on the faculty of the California Institute for Integral Studies at John F. Kennedy University. Dr. Ann Kelly and Dr. Laurel Parnell will cover a range of topics in today's episode. You'll appreciate things like, you know, learning how trauma gets stored in the body, in the brain, and in particular, again, like I said, using treatment approaches with an attachment lens that can promote deep healing. If this podcast has brought you value, or if you refer students or clients to it, we'd really like to invite you to join our online community at therapistuncensored.com backslash join. And whether or not you'd like to join that community, we'd like to invite you to our very first in-person meetup, which is going to happen on April 22nd, 2022. Now the hub meeting is happening in Austin, Texas, but no worries. Most of you will not be listening from Austin, Texas. And people are volunteering all around to host simultaneous Therapist Uncensored meetups all around. I think we have 40 people that have already raised their hand and said, we'll do it. If you are interested in either attending or hosting an event, it's pretty easy. First of all, if you just go to our Facebook page, it's listed under events. And Facebook page is just Therapist Uncensored. You can sign up directly at therapistuncensored.com backslash meetup. So that's M-E-E-T underscore U-P, meet up. If you have any trouble with that, you can also just email us, info at Therapist Uncensored, and we'll get you what you need to know. Now, let's jump right in. It is my honor and pleasure to welcome Dr. Laurel Parnell being interviewed by Dr. Ann Kelly. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for joining. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. It's my pleasure to be here. So let's start with talking about what EMDR is and why people out there could find it a powerful source for them. So let's just start with what is EMDR? So EMDR is a trauma therapy that was developed in the mid 80s by psychologist Francine Shapiro. And it's got lots and lots of research. It's considered an evidence-based therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder but we use it for a range of other kinds of difficulties. And I can talk more about those later, but the primary research on EMDR is for post-traumatic stress disorder, particularly single incident PTSD, like a car accident, dog bites, grief and loss, some things that don't have a lot of underlying complexity to them. We work with those kinds of things for sure, but we don't have that long-term research. So what we do with EMDR And kind of the theory around trauma is that when a trauma occurs, it gets locked in the nervous system and the way in which the trauma goes in. 
with the thoughts, feelings, and body sensations. It's left in fragmented form. Tell me a little bit about that. Sorry to jump in, but when you say it gets locked in the nervous system, what exactly does that mean? What part of the nervous system and why does it get locked? Well, it seems like it's affecting the part of the brain called the hippocampus. It's left in this form where the thoughts, feelings, and body sensations are like scrambled. They're not put together into a cohesive picture. So this is where you'll have a flashback where something will remind you of it and that it'll come back as a full body response, like terror or sweating, heart palpitations, stuff like that. So it's left in this, these fragments, ordinary memories, experiences that we have get processed. You know, we have the experience to get processed and then it gets sent into long-term memory eventually. But these severe traumatic experiences get left in fragments in the right side of the brain. And the right oh. side of the brain has no sense of chronological time. It's very sensory, very somatic. It doesn't have the narrative that goes with it. So this is where people can get very distressed because they have these kind of experiences and reminders that light them up with those kind of PTSD responses. When you say people can't process it, so it's like a little bit of an implicit memory. It's stored in our body in this implicit way, and it hasn't been processed to parts of our brain that has language that can understand it and interpret it and incorporate it. And so it's kind of caught almost. Brilliant. You've just described it. So the left side of the brain is where the language is. And the frontal lobes are where we make sense out of everything, right? So those part of the brain are frozen out when we have a big trauma like that. It's like overwhelmed. It's like, is our system, if a trauma or, or a, an accident, it just overwhelms our nervous system and our brain just blocks it out. Is that what you're saying? It's left in that fragmented form mm -hmm. on the right side of the brain. The part of our brain that does that processing, the hippocampus is frozen out. So it's not working as it does with other kinds of memories. So all of the therapies that rely on talking about it don't work mm -hmm. for PTSD. So this is where people can spend years in talk therapy about some horrible accident or sexual assault, and they're not getting better because the therapy isn't reaching where the trauma is stored. And it's not helping with that integration of the nonverbal experience. What we do with EMDR is we first create safety by using imagery that is strengthening for the person. Can you say a little bit more about that? When you say you first create it, you want to create imagery that brings safety in the body that makes the brain feel like it's okay and it's safe. I think what I need to kind of describe and what I was saying to you a little bit earlier is that EMDR has evolved from Francine Shapiro's original EMDR that came out in the 80s. And from my institute, the Parnell Institute, we do what we call attachment-focused EMDR where we've evolved beyond where standard EMDR is. So some of the things I'll describe to you are really our brand of EMDR, which emphasizes much more safety. We're more culturally mm -hmm. adaptive. We're more relational. We work with deep childhood traumatic experiences. And we have this much broader cultural perspective in terms of adapting what we do to each individual. And so with that, we really emphasize safety in a way that standard EMDR does not. So I have to differentiate okay. those two. What I mean by providing safety is that we use imagination and bilateral simulation to strengthen the person prior to beginning EMDR with them, because EMDR can be very intense. It can drop you into very powerful emotions that can be overwhelming. And if the person doesn't have enough ego strength, if they can't handle it emotionally, the EMDR itself can be traumatizing. With our institute and our brand of EMDR, which is attachment focused, we emphasize creating safety first. And so we use what I call the four foundational resources. We create a peaceful place where they can imagine that can calm the nervous system down. Then we, have, we find nurturing figures, figures real or imaginary that have a nurturing quality. And then we find protector figures, figures that have a protective quality. And then wise figures or spiritual figures. What we do is when you imagine something, you're lighting up those neural networks. And then when you add short amounts of bilateral simulation, you're linking it in. So we talk about lighting it up and linking it up, lighting it up and linking it up. So we have these resources that are inside. When you can imagine something, you're lighting up them inside yourself. 
And then when you add bilateral stimulation, it can be tapping, it can be drumming, it can be eye movement if people prefer that. It seems to link it up. And so the person has more capacity, more resilience. They have a sense of their resources there with them as they go into these deep traumatic experiences. So our institute, which is different from what the EMDR Institute and most of the other institutes are doing, really emphasizes creating the safety. We create a safety net before we begin. This is just, to me, it's just so important. I've been teaching EMDR since 1995. I was trained in 1991. I've trained thousands of people over the years and I've evolved what I do and how I teach it. And I really believe in creating that safety because the EMDR experience can be traumatizing in and of itself if there hasn't been sufficient safety established before beginning it. So for me, that means having a safe therapeutic relationship where there's trust between the therapist and the client. This can take however long it takes according to the needs of the individual, setting up these resources, making sure the person can handle this high level of affect. There are therapists who throw people in the deep end with EMDR way too soon, and they end up traumatized. And then we see people who've been traumatized by prior EMDR experiences, and we have to repair that and build trust because this therapy is profoundly healing. It's profoundly healing. If it's done in a way that feels safe for the participant, for the client. I am so glad that you just jumped in and covered that right from the beginning, because I wanted to talk to you about that down the road, that in kind of conversing with people that have experienced EMDR, some people speak so powerfully about it, but some people have experienced a trauma response. And I could imagine if your body is not ready, or if the relationship is not ready, that you drop into the most traumatic experiences in your life, how re-traumatizing that can be. And so that's actually or one reason why I reached out to you specifically to introduce EMDR to our audience, for those that are not familiar already with it, is because of your attachment focus. And I could sense from all of the individuals that have been trained by you that I know, as well as some of the ways that you write about trauma, that the focus on safety is such a priority. It really is. So you can have a great treatment effect, like somebody can start at a high level of distress and end at a low level of distress, and they never want to do it again because their experience in processing their trauma was so overwhelming, they just don't want to do it again. But if you create a safe environment where they can process in a way that feels safe and controlled for them, they have enough resources there to support them, then they'll be more likely to want to continue with that. And I think this is a big problem with EMDR is that not enough emphasis is placed on safety and the therapeutic relationship and the actual experience of the client in the, their EMDR experience. If I'm out there and I have maybe a particular issue with an accident, for instance, where it's caught in my body and I get in the car and I start to sweat, but I know generally what it is, would that be something that you would recommend that it would be fine to kind of go to a regular EMDR, kind of go through the process for that single incident? Or do you feel like if you're going to go into the process of EMDR that you really want to go in the focus of kind of attachment, safety, and security, like look for a therapist that really considers that? What are your thoughts? This is kind of a, a tough place to say what's what. And what I will tell you is this, is very often somebody will come in to see me, for example, with something that looks really simple, like mm -hmm. the way you've described it. And people don't want to have, you know, we always want to take a history. We want to know the person's background. We want to know who we're working with. That's so very important. And I insist that we install, we call install or tap in these basic resources. It's like, I want to make sure I've got seatbelts, airbags, safety established. Because what often can happen with EMDR is you start with something that doesn't seem like it's such a big thing, or it seems like it's a simple single incident thing. And it heads down the rabbit hole into uh -huh. dissociated early memories that the person may not have even known about. And then they're overwhelmed, they're crying, they're shaking. And then they're like, what did you just do to me? Because EMDR dissolves the dissociative barriers. Even very high-functioning people that have compartmentalized something earlier that has happened to them, it can come out in the EMDR processing. That's why I just feel, and this is part of the evolution of my thinking over time, is that we want to make sure everybody is safe 
They've got all their safety set up before we even begin. Even when people mm-hmm. say, oh, no, no, I don't bother with that. You don't need to take my history. You don't need to. <laughs> Let's just focus. <laughs> Let's just go. That's, no, don't waste my money. And I'm like, no, no, no. I need to know. I need to create. I need to have all that safety. That's on me to really have that safety established. Because I've had so many times where I was so grateful that I've done that. Because mm-hmm. it went in this way. It went in this way. And I think this is what makes EMDR quite different from talk therapy, from maybe some of the cognitive therapies where you're not doing this free associative processing. So let me go back to kind of explaining what standard EMDR looks like. And with how we do it from the Parnell Institute is we set up all the safety history taking context. And then when you're ready to do the trauma processing work, you light up the memory network. This is key to this. What picture represents the worst part of that incident? Let's say it's a car accident. What picture represents it? What are you feeling emotionally? What's happening in the body? And what is the negative belief or negative cognition? So that can be, I'm going to die. I'm not safe. I'm powerless. So we light that up. How do you light that up? If you've just had a car accident and you're coming in for EMDR, it's lit up pretty well. I might just say, close your eyes, go inside bring up the worst part of that incident for you, the part that you keep seeing. Oh, it's the moment right before the truck hits me. I can see it coming towards me. Say, okay, in that moment, what are you feeling? And I'll say, just kind of go inside yourself. Oh, I'm feeling terrified. My body's shaking. I feel sick to my stomach. What belief goes with it? I'm going to die. And then we start the bilateral simulation. So we light it up and then we put the foot on the accelerator and we begin this accelerated information processing. So the bilateral stimulation, be it eye movements, auditory, right, left, right, left, tapping, drumming, it sets off this rapid processing effect that is like mind-body-free association. Thoughts and feelings and body sensations, cognitions, memories, links, just start very rapidly moving through. It's kind of like if you imagine neural circuitry, the electrical currents going very rapidly to these different areas. And so we do a set and we check in what's happening. They tell us, we go with that. And we keep checking back with the incident until the distress is gone. It's gone from the body. It no longer has emotional charge. And there's a new view of it. I call it objective memory. It goes from being psychologically, emotionally connected to it happened in the past. It's like I'm reading about it in the newspaper. I'm okay. I survived. I'm okay as I am. There's a positive belief that naturally arises and we link that up with how they now view the scene. That's kind of in a nutshell what a session looks like, but it can go, oh, that accident reminds me of how my father used to beat me as a child. It was very, it's like, I'm innocent. I'm not doing anything wrong. And somebody comes at me and then boom, they're no longer at the car accident. They're now in an abuse memory. So the therapist has to be skilled enough to know how to manage that in a way that feels safe for the client to not just go, okay, now let's just do dad and then open all of that up. And then the person is flooding because they've opened up a childhood trauma memory and they still have this car accident opened up. So the therapist Mm -hmm. needs to know, well, let's leave that. We'll put that in a container and we'll just stay on this accident and complete that. So that's a little bit about EMDR. And what we say with EMDR is that in order to do EMDR, the client has to have enough ego strength to handle it. They have to have the capacity to feel strong emotions and to go to these places that feel really uncomfortable. So they have to be able to ride these waves of strong affect to move through. And if they don't have that, we're going to do something different with them. We're going to strengthen them. We're going to prepare them. And we can do more of this imagination and bilateral simulation to even work on strengthening them that can often reduce the level of distress in the trauma memories. That makes a lot of sense. Could you talk a little bit more about bilateral stimulation for those of us out there that would be, okay, I hear the idea of kind of tapping back and forth, but what is actually happening inside one's brain during bilateral stimulation? You know, I don't really know what it is. And there's a lot of different theories about what's going on and- What we can see is it sets off this very rapid processing effect. There's research being done, especially on eye movements and the effects of eye movements, Mm -hmm. but I don't use eye movements in my practice anymore. I haven't for maybe 15 years because clients didn't want to do it. They much preferred holding these little pulsers that buzz right and left or having headphones that make tones go right and left to making them move their eyes through their tears. People didn't like doing that. 
Oh, that's so interesting. So some of the different methods, and we're talking bilateral in some ways that we're having stimulation go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth to the different hemispheres. So instead of it being, you were mentioning that trauma gets stuck in the right side. And so you're revisiting the trauma in such a way, but going back and forth and back and forth where we're stimulating the other side of our hemisphere that is going to maybe integrate the language and I understand that's a little bit of a black box in there, but the bilateral is that we're activating both sides of the hemisphere at the same time while processing this information. Is that accurate? I think that it's profoundly integrative. So it integrates information that's located in different parts of the brain. For sure, it's doing that. It also desensitizes. So what's been highly charged loses its charge. It just goes down from being the accident's happening again too, it's in the past. It doesn't feel like it's now anymore. That may be the integration of the left and right. You know, Daniel Siegel, you probably know right. Daniel Siegel's work. He said he believed EMDR does horizontal and vertical integration. It's integrating both hemispheres of the brain and also base brain, midbrain, frontal lobes. So you're getting both ways by the end of an EMDR session. So the language centers are on the left side, right? Right. The right side is where the trauma stored. People don't have the language. Often they don't have the language and language isn't helping them. By the end, they can give you a narrative explanation of what happened. They can provide that at the end. It really, you really see this shift. So I think it processes, it's integrative. And in some cases it creates altered states of consciousness where there's a whole spiritual dimension that opens up for some people, for many people that is amazing. And I think we're connecting up to ancient practices. I think what Francine Shapiro stumbled into, and we've taught this all over the world, and we hear people from other countries going, oh, my Russian grandmother was a healer, and she did this thing with eye movements. Or in yeah. the shamanic practices of the Amazon, we do rattling or drumming. You hear it all over the world. People have been using drumming and bilateral stimulation in healing practices. So I think we've just modernized it in a way. And I think, you know, one of my passions is working cross-culturally, working in different countries with different peoples and finding out what they've done and helping them rediscover the practices they have had and seeing how we can bring these things together. It was so funny. I just had a little light bulb moment as you were speaking because thinking about the drumming practices, it's never crossed my mind, like sometimes the tapping, et cetera, until we just had this conversation, it never crossed my mind that drumming is bilateral, that as you're drumming with both hands, it's just like our tapping process, right? Just at this moment, I'm like, wait, that's a bilateral stimulation. So I love the integration of the culture. This isn't something that we just discovered. This is something that has been around and been around and we're now, like you said, modernizing it and then bringing it into understanding on some level what's going on neurologically and why that can be so healing. You know, interestingly enough, you know, I teach at Esalen, you know, Esalen Institute, right? Yes. So I've been there several times with Bessel and with Dan Siegel teaching at the same time. And we've yeah. had interesting conversations. And I talk with Bessel about the drumming and in particular South Africa and what did he think about drumming circles and using this in the culture? He said, you know what? It makes total sense. He said that they've lost their cultural roots because they believe the European way, the white European way was better. So cognitive therapy is what they're doing. So they have a history of drumming and dancing. We also have a humanitarian assistance program called the Trauma Assistance Program International. And we brought drums in to Soweto so that these young people are drumming. We call it tapping through the traumas. It's one of the innovations that we developed. So it's finding ways that we can match up. And then in Singapore, I've been to Singapore several times training the Singaporeans and they just are affect phobic. It's not in the culture to express feelings or say anything negative about your family. And so we're finding they need a lot more resourcing than we Americans who are more used to emotional expression. But it's not like they're doing it wrong. It's like, this is what fits them. Right. So you're working with that and what is in their culture, not trying to shift it, but trying to help them learn to reprocess in this way, in a way that fits with their culture and their understanding of affect. Yeah. It's like, I don't know what's going to fit your culture. I mean, here's how we do it. You tell me what's mm -hmm. going to work for you. And so we're discovering 
and uh, being able to share what we're discovering, especially Singapore, just the Chinese Singaporeans. It's a very mixed group of people, primarily Chinese Singaporeans, who would be like mainland Chinese. They're carrying a very similar culture, like the Koreans, the Japanese. It's from the Confucius system where, you know, respect of family, you don't express emotion, all of that. But we're finding really cool things like doing much more resourcing, much more work that way, and also using art and EMDR together, drawing their feelings and processing through art rather than language. So would you consider the act of drawing a process of bilateral stimulation, the act in and of itself? No. So you draw and then you tap. So it's a way to get that implicit information on the page. Some of the stuff that you can't say, or you can't even admit but you can mm-hmm. do it through colors and shapes and forms and representational stuff that has an emotional charge to it. And then the bilateral simulation, and then you draw the next thing, bilateral simulation, draw the next thing. So you follow process through drawing and bilateral simulation, mm-hmm. and they can just put a label on what the drawings represent. They don't have to give you any information, but it really makes a difference. But to move out of the centric way and to open up in a way to be very much impacted and interfacing with, right? Isn't that our ultimate goal? Yeah, it is. It's, to me, it's like the boxes have blown out mm-hmm. and I'm lo- really looking at things. I'm, I'm calling it multidimensional integrative healing. So we're really looking mm-hmm. at the multidimensionality, including all the different cultures and expressions in a way that we've stepped out of our position as the right way. We're not well, there yet. And I don't know if you know this, but cognitive behavioral therapy is dominating in a major way. It is so scary. Really? Yes. And APA is dominated by these people and they're disallowing for CEUs, somatic experiencing, for example, they're not giving credits for their trainings and their workshops anymore. APA is not, I did not know that. They're in the middle of this right now. It's really bad. And they're coming after anybody in my book called rewiring the addicted brain. And I have a workshop and all of that. I had APA credits, you know, CEUs, and they've disallowed them now because I'm using the term rewiring. I took it out of the title of the workshop and they still wouldn't let me keep it anymore. And there's a lot of evidence for rewiring. There is, but this is what's happening now. So it's like this other force, this very male, left brain, linear, Eurocentric way is coming in and it's really scary. Mm -hmm. It's everywhere, you know? Oh, it's so true. In our politics. Yeah. Oh my God, yes. The feminine, mm-hmm. the relational, the intuitive. We're battling this. Well, what's so interesting about EMDR is there is so much actual empirical research to support that. And we might be remiss to not talk a little bit about that. It's mostly on PTSD. But most okay. of the research is on single incident PTSD, and it's using the standard protocol. It's going to be on educated people. It's not going to be on somebody who has difficulty with a language. It's not going to be anybody who has any kind of history of childhood physical or sexual abuse. The research is on a car accident, a dog bite, a whatever it is. And then it's a, it's a standard protocol. It's picture. Um, it's what picture represents the worst part. What negative belief do you have about yourself? What would you like to believe about yourself? Measuring that on a scale from one to seven, then asking for the emotions measuring that on a zero to 10 scale, and then asking for the body. There's a lot of measurements in the standard protocol, you know, for people who, for whom English isn't their first language, for anybody who's embarrassed, who, you know, the being judged is not going to work. That standard protocol is really off-putting, but that's what's researched. The research has been on the standard protocol. I've got a Singaporean psychologist who did research on the modified attachment focused with children. And then another report out of the UK, that we recently got published on the modified protocol. And what were the outcomes? Oh, very positive. We need more research. We're, we're right. really trying to get more research. But this is the politics of it. The EMDR mm-hmm. Institute and the EMDR International Association don't want any modifications, and they want it all to be very standardized and technique, and it's suffocating, mm-hmm. and it doesn't work cross-culturally. This is the battle we're in right now. So we just, instead of trying to fit within EMDR, I'm just calling it something different. Because mm-hmm. we've really evolved out of that. And yet there's still a good place for that. But right. in working with deeper stuff cross-culturally, you can't make everybody do the same thing. No. 
and it doesn't feel safe. If you don't have the therapeutic attunement, especially when dealing with attachment disruptions, if you are not attuned and you're not feeling that kind of full-bodied sense of safety, like to do something that's so formulaic, I think would very much be re-traumatizing. I mean, I'm not saying that it's not still going to have a really positive effects on the car accidents, on the specific traumas. It's been shown to have a positive effect. So I really want as limited as the research is out there and agree with you about the need for an extensive it, the research that does exist really does show a reduction in symptoms, hypervigilance comes down, the feelings of re-traumatization comes down, the ability to be in the press. So there's a lot of outcome variables, which are super promising, but I really understand what you're saying. It's so limiting in if it has to be so formulaic, how can you research this cross-culturally with other languages? But the outcome is people feel different. They can feel it. They can be in the presence. It's just amazing. And this is where you also get criticism because it's it works so well, people can't believe it. Like, how could that be, you know, three sessions and they're no longer traumatized? How is that even possible? So just the miraculousness of it can cause doubt with mm-hmm. people who have not experienced it. What is the timing typically? I know it obviously is going to vary grandly depending on what issue that you're really wanting to use EMDR, but is there sort of this idea of a standard protocol? The research really points to for a single incident trauma using double sessions, that means 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's typically one to three sessions of EMDR trauma processing to clear one big thing. So like a car accident that just is one car accident that that created symptoms that prevented the person from being able to drive comfortably. But you know, the skill level of the therapist varies so widely. You know, that's why when you ask me that question, the skill level is just, you know, somebody who just does it every once in a while really Mm -hmm. doesn't know what they're doing. Hasn't taken really hasn't gotten certified, hasn't gone beyond just the basic training they're not going to be very good. And you won't probably get the treatment effect you would if you're working with somebody who's really skilled at this. By the way, a really good person in Austin is Christy Sprouse. Christy Sprouse is my buddy. She's an EMDR trainer also. She facilitated for me, assisted me when I worked at the crossings. She's one of my dear, dear friends, and she's a brilliant therapist. She's great. She's just, I miss her. I haven't seen seen her in a while because of COVID, right? Right, right. Well, how it's so nice to to know some particular people in different areas that could really have done the training that you respect. Yeah, no, she's yeah. she's terrific, and she does trainings locally. What's interesting is, I said I haven't been using directed eye movements for many years. I had what we call the light bar, where people were able to do that, and when I have this other device where they could hold these little pulsers and have headphones that were making sounds with the little buzzy things. Nobody wanted eye movements anymore. They preferred to keep their eyes closed and to maintain more of an inner experience. They felt less self-conscious. They didn't get strain in their eyes. What's interesting to see is some people, their eyes are twitching rapidly under their eyelids as we're doing these other forms of bilateral simulation. So they're really not distinct eye movements versus drumming or tapping because eye movements are involved with both. So I don't know what that means. It looks like REM sleep. And that's one of the theories is that what we're doing with the MDR, with the eye movements, is what happens with dreaming sleep. Their eyes are moving very rapidly back and forth and we're processing information as we're dreaming. That's so interesting because REM sleep, that's the time period in our day where we're integrating everything that happened to us and putting it into our memory banks. We're storing it and making, and we're integrating. That's why sleep is so important, right? Because we need to go through a certain amount of REM sleep so that we can integrate everything that's happened to us. So that makes it so fascinating to think about the eye movement being similar in EMDR as REM sleep and that we're talking about being able to integrate these things that have happened to us and throughout our whole history that have been not integrated. So it's a process of integration. And I think when you think about it that way, that's so much of what we're doing is we're helping the whole nervous system integrate information that it has not been able to metabolize and integrate, but it happens so fast. And I think this is the other hallmark of EMDR is that we have a natural healing system that's been disrupted by trauma. We activate our own natural healing system by the use of lighting up the network and using alternating bilateral simulation. 
that naturally moves it to an adaptive resolution. We naturally move towards health and wholeness. So the therapist isn't an interventionist, isn't like directing the client to think or feel or do anything. We're really lighting it up and allowing this natural healing process to unfold. But it unfolds rapidly because as soon as you start that bilateral stimulation, it starts going really fast. And it's just mind blowing. The other idea is that we have this big generalization effect through the neural networks. So for instance, if you've had, we'll use car accidents, several car accidents, and you're having trouble driving because you've got all this anxiety, you can start with either the earliest or the worst of those accidents. And by doing one of them, it will generalize up through the neural networks and take care of all of them. So often we have these major generalization effects rather than, you know, with exposure therapy, you've got to do each thing over and over and over again. With EMDR, we get these generalization effects. Some people are like miraculously generalizing. So you just, you don't even need very many sessions and other people are not generalizing quite like that, but it's still so much faster than other therapies. That's fascinating. And what I hear you saying too, is that the rapidness has to do with not this conscious processing, but this integration of this information. And I love what you were saying earlier about how, I guess in trauma, the experience is happening in the moment, right? You mentioned that it gets caught on the right side, which has no future past. It's just like, it's as if the trauma is happening right now. The fan that mimics the helicopter in a PTSD war veteran, right? It's the body's physiological responses as if that trauma is happening in that moment, right? The ability to integrate it with the other side of our brain, but recall Dan Siegel talking about it being a kind of a whole brain experience of the integration. I could see how it could move from this is happening this second to, oh, my body experienced this. It's adjusting. It's coming into the present tense and I'm safe. So it becomes part of from this implicit, I can't name it, to this explicit, this happened to me. I can talk about it in the past. You're beautifully describing this. And here's what's really odd. I've experienced EMDR myself. So you can say, I know it's in the past. Of course I know it's in the past. (laughs) But your body is having an experience like it's happening right now. So you can very directly have this experience of the lack of integration. Like I know, you know, I survived that car accident, but every time I get in a car and there's, you know, trucks around, I'm having a panic attack. You know, I know it's in the past, but it's that lack of integration. After EMDR, people aren't even noticing. They forget that they even have the symptom. That's how it changes though. It's like, oh yeah, I couldn't used to drive. Oh yeah, I couldn't used to cross bridges. Oh yeah, I couldn't used to, you know, whatever it is they couldn't do before. They're just back to normal. As you say that, I think of how often we become so critical of ourselves when something seems obvious, like, I know this is ridiculous. I know that this snake that I'm holding, you know, we're talking about specific phobias and I, I, and I would love to kind of jump in a moment into more like attachment-based traumas. But if I know intellectually, I actually am thinking about somebody that may be preoccupied and they know they're not getting rejected, but they can't help but to feel the physiological feelings of abandonment and rejection and respond in these predictable ways and then get really angry at themselves because they know better. You know, how often do you get mad at yourself? I know better. But in talking about this to help us understand how this implicit body response is in there, there's no intellectual processing in it. There's no decision being made. No, and this kind of self-criticalness is overlaid on top. I'm stupid. What's wrong with me? People are saying, get over it. So not only do people say that about themselves, but their family members are telling them that or other people in their life, get over it. What's wrong with you? You're malingering. You're using it as an excuse, all of that stuff. And then the person beats themselves up too. And Bessel van der Kolk often says that therapies that rely on language are not the ones that really work with trauma. They're just not reaching where the trauma stored and they're not allowing it to get processed out. The therapies that work are the ones that access the right side of the brain and allow information to get processed. They're like EMDR and somatic experiencing. What are some of the other ones? There's a number of contemporary psychotherapies mm-hmm. that are not, you know, language that include language, but they're not, you know, language isn't what you're focusing on because so much of this information is in that implicit nonverbal. 
So talk about some specifics. We've been talking about like a car accident, et cetera. And we talk about on the show that there's trauma events, but there's also trauma in the little T event, the trauma in these chronic kind of experiences of, of childhood abuse, or, or I guess that would be big T, but childhood traumas that of attachment disconnections, et cetera, that are also stored in the body. And how do you process that? It's not the event of a car accident, but I'm coming in with maybe a deeper sense of an attachment trauma, attachment disconnection, feelings of abandonment. How would you address that? Yeah. So this is really, you know, our innovation from my Institute and my book is called attachment focused EMDR healing relational trauma. So this is where we've evolved beyond standard EMDR. And so what we recognize is there are the things that happen that have emotional charge, but then there's the absence of the never being loved, never being seen, never being held, never being mirrored or validated, right? Those lack of experiences. Standard EMDR, there's no what we call targets. How do you go in on that? The breakthrough is realizing that for some people, what we need to do is we need to build in new neural networks. We need to create new neural networks. We need to do reparative work. And what we found is by using imagination and bilateral simulation, we can begin to fill in these developmental deficits. And it's extraordinary. It's amazing. I recently presented at our conference, the Parnell Institute Conference on developmental repair with LGBTQIA clients, because so many people who are not heterosexual are treated like there's something wrong with them, they're unlovable, they're damaged goods, they're rejected by their families, they're rejected by their communities, they're rejected by the religious community. There's so much hurt. And so you find difficulty in relationships, you find drug abuse, you find suicidality, mm-hmm. all of these kinds of things result. What we'll do for anybody who has these kind of emotional debt, we're not being loved, not being seen, foster care, drug addicted parents, all of that, where you're really seeing they don't have the template for healthy relating. It's just not there because they didn't have it consistently. What we can do is through imagination, help them create what they needed and didn't get. So they can create an ideal mother. They can create an ideal father. They can create the family that they needed. They can create a community of loving and accepting people that they could be born into who could be there and support them throughout their life. So we'll co-create this with the client, throwing out different ideas. They may know of somebody who would have been the perfect fit. One gay man who had, he was raised Orthodox Jewish. He was gay. He knew it was gay from the time he was four. He was forced to conversion therapy in Israel twice in order to be who he was, which was a gay man. He was going to be cast out of his community and his family. And he tried. He married, had children. He tried. And finally, he couldn't take it anymore. And then he came out and he lost everything. And now he's trying to find himself. That's heartbreaking. It is. And this is not unusual, right? Especially when the religion says that you're bad, you're wrong, you're sinning, all of that. It's just so incredibly damaging. We all need to know that who we are is okay, that we're loved, we're good, we're accepted, we belong what he and I did is we created the kind of family constellation that he needed to feel accepted and loved. And we created two moms and a gay dad. Oh, I love that. He picked Ellen DeGeneres and he picked Frankie from Grace and Frankie. Oh yeah. 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 He picked Frankie, Lily Tomlin. Oh, that Frankie. Yes, yes, yes. So for him, for his developmental repair, he wanted two moms and a gay dad. And then he tapped them in, he created what he wanted. And then he reimagined his entire life up to the present time with them in his life. So he reimagined the types of rejection and trauma that he had as a child with these positive members supporting him? No. No. He just redid entirely. He's born to people who love and want him. From the Ah. beginning, he's seen, accepted, wanted, belongs. We're redoing. We're creating new healthy neural pathways having to do with love and acceptance and relationships. So this is our innovation that the Parnell Institute has that comes from this aha experience I had that basic EMDR is great at reprocessing traumas, but what do you do when there's an absence of, and when there's an absence of, you can through imagination and bilateral stimulation, fill it in. 
So you can have whole sessions of just focusing on giving the person what they need. And using the imagination of how powerful that is. Are you familiar with Dan Brown's work or David Elliott, who are talking about using the ideal parent type of protocol and memory is sort of similar. Like I love great minds thinking alike and having the client develop an ideal, just like you did this ideal parent figure that could sit with them and create what wasn't there. Exactly. And that our brain responds. And what's amazing is people know what they need. So if you give them the space, you can create anything you want let's throw out ideas. You come out with ideas and they come up with what they need. What's and I mean, two moms and a dad and a gay dad, that's what fit for him. Another client, it was, it was a trans client. And I think it was a community. What he wanted was a community where they could have primary parents, but be loved and accepted within a community. So what fits for the individual? And by the way, we've been using this with problems with sexuality where there's been sexual abuse or, you know, problems with their own sexuality because of all the traumas, they never had a healthy sexual development. Well, let's give you a healthy sexual development. What would that look like? Same thing with regard to relationship with food. Say more. Well, if they had a mom who didn't have a healthy relationship to her body and to eating, and from the beginning, mom was either overfeeding them or underfeeding them and not helping them learn to attune to their own body needs. And then, you know, all of the dysfunctional stuff around food and eating that they had from their family of origin, because it started really early on. So let's create a mom who has a healthy relationship to food, her own body, and that she can help you in a loving way, you know, help you learn what it feels like to be full and what kind of food you like and what you don't like, and just kind of redo development with regard to food as the emphasis. It can really help with some of the distorted eating that people have developed along the way. How do you integrate ENDR in that process? You're helping them imagine the idealize the things that is going to bring their body safety and to recreate what they didn't have. And then how do you integrate the EMDR aspects of that? Well, I call this attachment-focused EMDR. So within attachment-focused EMDR, we have the trauma process in EMDR where we light up the network and we process. And then we have the part where we're filling in and, and repairing. So it really depends upon the individual. Some people you see in this assessment when you're getting to know them and you're getting their history that they never had stability, that they really are lacking that basic foundation and that we got to lay the foundation before we do the trauma processing work. Or sometimes we'll, you know, we'll get the basic resources, what I call the four foundational resources in. And then we start EMDR and we go, wow, this person has got too many holes. We got to go in and we got to do this. So sometimes I can tell what we need to start with by the basic history and that kind of thing. We want to start with this. And other times we'll go, okay, now we need to do that. It's obvious that we need to do that. And, you know, sometimes the traumas take care of themselves That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. They've, you know, the I'm loving, I deserve love. I'm a good person. So they get that solid enough in them. Then the traumas lose their intensity. Uh, Really, really seems impactful. Can you expand on how you might use it? I love that you talked about the eating disorders. What about something like panic attacks, panic attacks where you don't know where the association is and then they sneak up on you and you're in the middle of a grocery line and all of a sudden you experience a panic attack. How would you address that? Well, I want to get a good developmental history. I want to get the history of when the panic attacks began, what Mm -hmm. was going on, how long have they had them? What are the triggers for them? So I've got a whole bunch of demo videos I've done for years. I was teaching in New York city at the New York open center and we videotaped the demonstrations I did with people in the class So I've got a whole video library of the work. And uh, there was a woman, and I'll use her as an example, who had these panic attacks. And it was severe. And she would have panic attacks in the subway. And they were triggered by seeing a distressed mother with a screaming child. It was so bad, she'd have to change trains. If it was happening in a grocery store, she'd have to run out of the grocery store. She'd often have to change trains multiple times Mm. to get away from any situation like that. And so what we do is if they know what the precipitant is, we're always looking for what's the precipitant. Was there an incident that happened that's linked to this? So the way we think about 
the work is always what in the past is linked to the problem in the present. We're looking for the early roots of the problem. So if the person says they know what it is, such and such happened, and ever since that time I've had this panic, then that's what we're going to focus our EMDR on. Often the person doesn't know. They have no idea why mm-hmm. they're having these problems. The woman with the subway had no idea why. She had a lot of hypotheses about why that was happening. And if they don't really know, I use what I call the bridging technique. This is a technique I developed to find the early roots. It's derived from the affect bridge that comes out of hypnotherapy, but it's a much simpler technique. We simply light up the network. For her, it would be, okay, give me an example of when you had a panic attack recently. Okay, it was a woman with a child, the child's screaming, the mother's losing it. Okay, as you see that, what do you feel? I feel, you know, panic, terror, my heart's beating, my stomach is sick. What thoughts or beliefs? I'm not safe. Immediate thoughts. Then I say, trace it back in time. Go back as far as you can without censoring it. And then they, with their eyes closed, drop back in time. And then they land somewhere. Mm. And then I just ask, okay, where are you now? Oh, she said, I'm a little girl. I'm in Africa where my family was living. I think her father was like a diplomat. I am screaming my head off as I look out the window because I have a male babysitter who she said, this is weird. She's, he's a nice man. He's a very nice man, but I'm terrified of him. So this is what it linked to. So then that's what we did our EMDR on. And that linked mm-hmm. to another memory of being with a male babysitter who was abusing his own children physically and cleaned that up. We cleaned the one with in Africa. And then we went back up to the thing that we started with that had decreased. We did one more bridge back cleaned that up related that connected to mother, her mother, when she was a child. And when we went back up to the scene in the subway that had triggered her originally, the distress was completely gone. She could not find it. And then the last part, we say, imagine yourself in a situation in the future with a screaming child and a distressed mother. So we run that by, oh, it's okay. I can handle it. And then we add bilateral simulation into the future projection. And then she has to go out and experience it. So it's always about feedback. It's not always like, okay, we trust we've gotten it. Feedback. She came back the next day, had been in the subway, was not triggered at all anymore. It was gone because we mm-hmm. found the roots of the problem. So I think another thing that really distinguishes our brand of EMDR is we understand how to find the roots of the problem. Because very mm-hmm. often, you know, it's not what you think it is. It's something else that got associated and linked up. And this is this mm-hmm. whole idea of these neural networks. Things get linked up in really strange ways. They would never show up in a history, never show up in a history. They just get linked up and then they're causing these problems. So that's an example of working with a panic attack. We can be really successful with these panic attacks, you know, finding out what in the past is linked to them. And these, especially if they don't know, using this technique to find the early roots of it. Well, just knowing that there is likely early roots to it. I guess I know sometimes panic attacks just happen out of nowhere, there's not, you can't even pair an association to it sometimes. And that's what makes it so traumatic, right? Like I'm sitting here having a cup of coffee with a friend and all of a sudden I start to experience this flash and they can say, there's nothing about this particular moment. But what I am hearing you say is that through the process of just let's go in and you activating the system and so that you activate their memory of what it was like and then where do you go? And so that free association process, I can just hear the connections of bringing sort of the more explicit memory into the implicit and then the implicit to the explicit, like going kind of almost, it sounds like back and forth, like the memory that they can remember starts to help them. It sounds like bring up memories that they have kind of suppressed or don't have access to. It's almost like a stair step. Yeah, it's like things get linked up in such unusual ways that, you know, you think of it as unconscious. They're unconscious. They're fragmented. They're not linked up. They don't make any sense, but they're down there. So for instance, like somebody's having a panic attack as they're having coffee with a friend. It Mm -hmm. might have to do with the time of day. It might have to do with the time of year. It might have to do with some scent or somebody in the room. It could be all kinds of things Mm -hmm. that are lighting that up. But when we close your eyes and you, you know, what are you seeing, feeling, thoughts or beliefs, trace it back in time, boom, it lands in places. I have an example of a woman who had a fear of going to sleep. I've worked with a number of people who had insomnia not caused by a medical condition. 
and I had her go to the moment as she start trying to fall asleep, what happens? And she said, I wake myself up. I don't let myself fall asleep. Go back inside and recreate that moment. So she's sleeping. She's starting to drift off. And then what's happening? She said, my heart's beating, my stomach's tight. And she said, I can feel stimulation in my urethra area. And what are the immediate thoughts or beliefs? She said, it's not safe to fall asleep. And then I just said, trace it back in time. Go back as far as you can without censoring. And out pops a memory of wetting the bed as a seven-year-old. Had nothing to do with sexual abuse or any of the things you might have thought. It had everything to do with the problem with bedwetting as a child that she hadn't thought of for years. So we target and reprocess the bedwetting incident, one that represented a lot of others. When that was done, we went back up to sleeping and she goes, oh, it's safe to fall asleep. I don't wet the bed anymore, right? <laughs> so the whole brain is getting reprogrammed in this idea that it is not an unsafe thing. Wetting bed was at age seven, but the body's still responding as if she falls asleep in this moment, something horrible is going to happen. And I can see how much that would impact the everyday life of someone who just like, ah, oh, I'm just stuck in this cycle. And what would you say for individuals that maybe they're out there listening and they have a, a therapist that they trust and they've been with, but they have this kind of catch in something that's really important. Would you say switch therapist? Would you say augment? What would your recommendation be? We have a find a therapist site for people who've been trained in the way in which we work. There's such a range of how people work in EMDR. And, you know, I would never say leave your therapist. I just don't know. Or if they're not getting better, it's like a responsibility as therapists to refer out if what we're doing isn't helping. Oh, definitely. And I, I, I'll speak for myself that I am not trained in EMDR, but I have found it to be helpful and more and more feel inclined to say, why don't you in this particular thing? And then I can work in conjunction with that therapist, which has been kind of amazing. Like you don't, you don't, cause sometimes people feel really loyal to the therapist and think, oh, this sounds really interesting, but all the work and all that this therapist knows about me, I would lose. Right. And there's actually in Austin, several EMDR therapists that are really good about working in conjunction with that really work on a particular process and can work in collaboration with your therapist, if you have that strong relationship, as well as I love what you're saying, if you feel like you're not progressing, shifting to something that may feel like you can see results is really important. Yeah. And there are some excellent EMDR therapists in Austin. Austin is where the EMDR International Association is, is based. And That's I right. also, I taught in Austin for years through a place called the Crossings. I don't know if yes. you know about the Crossings. Yeah. I, I was going twice a year to Austin to do EMDR trainings. I was so oh, sad to hear that they closed. It was a beautiful, beautiful place. Oh, yes, it is. I was sad that they closed. I think something else opened in its place, but I was really glad when trainings were out there. It was just amazing. Let me ask you one question. Right now with COVID, a lot of therapists are working online. And what is your feeling about integrating the EMDR practices while having to work remotely with clients? It's working great. Our right. trainings are all virtual right now. So this is where the trainings that we're doing, teaching people all over the country and internationally because of working virtually. You know, everybody I know is using EMDR virtually and it's working fine. I just think we need to spend enough time really making sure the client is stable and safe and well-resourced that we have. We can make sure they don't dissociate. I think all of those things, safety needs to be even more emphasized when working virtually. Like we can't like grab hold of somebody's hands and make sure they're not floating out of their body. So I think a lot of those things, but we're having great success working virtually. And I heard this from one of my colleagues in New York city who works with veterans. And he said that they're not missing as many sessions. They feel safer because they can do this deep work within their home where they feel safe. They don't have to get back in their car or in a subway or something where you go into a deep state and then you, you come out and you have to deal with the outer world. So in some ways, if you have a home environment where you can create a space where you have privacy, it mm -hmm. can work really, really well. I have found doing virtuals shockingly effective. I didn't think it would be, especially for couples, the same situation where people are at home together, they don't have the adjustment. But as we're talking about it and dealing with trauma and these kind of issues and having to create safety first, I imagine getting to be able to close your eyes and do this in your own home environment 
really sends a signal to the body to relax, right? Which is part of the whole process is as you start to integrate it, you want to have a safe environment that says I can do this. Yeah. If your home is safe. Well, good point. Domestic violence situation and it's not safe or you've got kids running around or somebody who's going to interrupt. I mean, there are people doing EMDR therapy in their cars. The clients are in their cars because that's the only space. Mm. You know, this gets into, you know, income, you know, some people don't have much space in their home. Right, right. And I think also we'd probably be remiss, you know, we need to wrap up soon to not talk about the kind of traumas that people are stuck with due to racial suppression, et cetera, that they have this like in whole environmental trauma that they've been experiencing through most of their life, right? Oh, and it's it's really up right now. It's like oh, the yeah. ugliness is just coming up out of the pits. So there's so much anger and, and explicit racism and just awfulness mm-hmm. that's that's coming out. So I think in some ways it can feel like, okay, this is what I've been experiencing and now it's out. So you've seen it. But on the other side, people don't feel safe. One of my big, big interests is American history and the history of slavery and the debacle of reconstruction and what happened to our native peoples. And I think until we really address this kind of historic ancestral trauma that we have that is in the base of our country, it's not going to get healed. It hasn't ever been admitted. It hasn't ever been repaired in some way. And I think we carry ancestral trauma. We all do. And it's right here and it's right now and it's the time to really work with it. And we can do this. The EMDR work is wonderful. So I think for many people, they've internalized the racism. We've internalized mm-hmm. misogynism, certainly. Mm-hmm. Women feeling like I'm less than a man. Like, you know, you know how we're treated, how we're looked at. We internalize these things. And the same thing with race and all of this, that the extent to which we believe the projection, we believe we're not good enough. We believe we don't belong, that we're not lovable. We're not as good as other people because of how we're treated. We carry those receptor sites inside. So what we want, and then we pass them on to our children. So we can, mm-hmm. we can look at the origins of some of this stuff and clean it out in ourselves so that we're not carrying that. And that when mm-hmm. we're mistreated in society, we see it, but we don't feel like we deserve it. And I think that's just really important that we don't feel like we deserve it. We see that we deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. So, you know, we need to do both really clean out the inside as well as address this, you know, socially and politically. So I guess that's really a big part of the R and the EMDR in terms of the reprocessing and resocial, like, is is that what you're saying? It's like the repair, the part. It is for me, yes. it's just so important. You know, I teach all over the world and I've worked in community mental health. I speak Spanish. So that's been a part of how I view things and also why our Institute, we adapt everything according to the needs of the individual. We're not like, because even therapy is so white. It's so about white educated people. It's just been distressing to me for years and that we're being told we can't make modifications. It's like only for special groups, like everybody's a special group and we need to find a way to language this and to be with people where they are as the relationship is predominant, the relationship is the most important thing here, that there's trust and respect with each individual. So that's where we are with our organization. And that's not how EMDR is mostly being taught. I have to say it's not. It's being taught in a very rigid technical way. And Mm -hmm. therapists are being shamed if they make any modifications. And to me, I have to teach modifications from the very beginning because each person is unique. And if we tell somebody, no, you can't do X, Y, or Z, they're going to feel shamed and they're going to feel like they can't do it right. You know, that they have to fit a mold. We want everybody to be seen validated and safe. So that instead of even making it modifications, what you're talking about is integration. It's, it's having, it's not that I have one size fits all and you need to fit in. It's such the white model and we're going to go off and take it to all sorts of different, like this is how it's done. Instead, I really appreciate what you're saying is you go to different cultures and you listen to how they're already doing it, that it's part of their culture. It's not you going to teach, you know, you're integrating their culture into a process of something that you have found very powerful. And then with each individual, you just discover with them what's going to work best for them. So everything is like, 
listening and attuning and responding in a way that's healthy. This is that right brain to right brain connection, right? That is part of the repair. So not only is it what we're doing, it's how we're doing it. It's every part of it. It's how we're listening, how we're present with them and how we're responding. That's Mm -hmm. integrated into everything we're doing. I love it. If somebody wants to find you, we will of course, have all sorts of information on the show notes, but what's the best way to track you down if somebody's interested in learning more, being trained, finding a therapist? Yeah, so it's the Parnell Institute. It's parnellemdr.com. And I also, I've got several books. I've got six books that I've written. One is called Tapping In that's specifically using this imagination and bilateral simulation with resourcing. And this attachment book is called Attachment Focused EMDR, Healing Relational Trauma. So I have two books that are for the general public and the others are for the therapist working in this way. All right. I appreciate it. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that is just sticking out? It's like, oh, I have to say this. She didn't ask me this, but anything that comes to your mind, if nothing, because we covered it all, that's great too. Yeah. I can't think of anything. I think okay. you know, you've just been such a great interviewer that's allowed me to express so much about what oh, we're doing. It. And I just want to say that it, I don't want to make it sound like we're the only ones doing it in a relational way. We've Mm -hmm. just emphasized that in terms of my Institute and my writings, but there are many other brilliant, wonderful, loving, compassionate therapists who have found the modifications and the attunement to the individual clients. So I just want to emphasize that too. I think that's a really good point. And if somebody's out there trying to find a therapist I think you've given some highlights of what you might ask. Is there particular questions that you might suggest that people asked, you know, in a 15 minute get to know you interview that might help inform them? What would you ask? Well, I want to know what level of training they've had. There are thousands of people have been trained and some of them slept through the training. You know, they really have not been trained where they can demonstrate that they know what they're doing. How much do they use EMDR? Do they use it all the time? Or they just use it every once in a while. It makes a huge difference between the people who are dabbling and the people who really embody it. Do you like the person? Do you feel comfortable with them? Do you feel safe with them? Just the basic stuff like that. Or do you feel like they're looking at you like you're an object? You need to feel like you can talk with them. You can feel safe with them, that you like them. There's a rapport, whatever that is. It's just so important. And, you know, have they done advanced training? Have they continued on with their education with EMDR? And have they had consultation? Those are things, you know, I would really want to know. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I think ah, the listeners are going to get so much out of this conversation. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Oh, fantastic. It's been such a pleasure. And thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed this, please think about somebody that might benefit from it. Send it on to them. It always helps us also if you take the time to rate and review us. It helps other people find us. And thanks for joining us. And we'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 